You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. Out of the darkness into the light. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. How many threads connect the reader to the crime fiction writers that read and also they follow? NPR's Maureen Corrigan called Reed Farrell Coleman a hard-boiled poet. Lee Child, whose real name is James Grinton, and people know that, quote, Coleman is a noir grand master. And Reed Farrell Coleman, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. All right, so I'm going to come with a quote that I found. You can agree or disagree, but that whole genre of noir fascinates me and how you define it. And this is one of the characters you said to another character, your protagonist, Nick Ryan. You know what the darkest theme in noir? That the truth never makes anything better and usually makes everything worse. So how do you define noir? Well, I try never to define it because it's a slippery slope. Uh, it's like trying to define hard wild. Um, you know, the, the kind of uh, snarky answer is it's French for black. Okay. <laughs> um, or James Elroy's definition is, pardon my French, um, on page one, everybody's fucked and then things get worse. So <clears throat> I, I like to define noir as um, the world is tilted on its end and everybody is scratching with their nails to hang on, uh, but everybody's going to go down the drain eventually. I mean, circle the drain, as they say in some cases, when there's somebody has been uh, murdered or dying. So I'm a big fan of comedy. I listen to a lot of podcasts that talk about and analyze comedy. And the comedians always say there is one comedian, comedian everybody else talks about. He is the comedian for all the other comedians and not well known. So I'm wondering in your world, in terms of crime fiction writers, are you the crime fiction writer everybody else talks about? Well, if I am, they don't tell me. <laughs> um, you know, I don't know. Uh, for a long time, I carried the mantle of the best writer nobody's ever heard of. Uh, and now I've moved up to the best writer only a few people have heard of. Uh, no, you know, when I started doing the Jesse Stone novels for the estate of Robert B. Parker, right. I became known. So I can't say that I'm the guy that nobody knows anymore. Um, I know I'm respected by my peers, but we are often the worst judges of where we stand in the world and, and who anybody else talks about. Because like I said, if they talk about me, they don't tell me about it. Well, we'll tell everybody about it. That's for sure. So I know you're very friendly with Peter Blauner and he's one of my all time favorites. And I think you are, him are in the same world of people that I love to read and respect. And I'll tell you why, because of the reasons you choose to write what you do. Yes, it's crime fiction. But I think you're reflecting your own thoughts about the world around us. Well, first of all, thank you for including me with Peter, who's one of my closest friends in the community and uh, somebody I respect the hell out of as a writer and as a person. And uh, yeah, crime fiction for me is a great vehicle to talk about the world. Right. Um, because crime fiction features people at heightened senses of uh, emotion. It's like war. It's like writing about war because during war, people are at their the least amount of filtering at their most extreme. And I think crime fiction does the same thing in that the characters you're dealing with are uh, raw and have their filters are at low ebb. So you really get to see what the human condition is like. Now, I have your book. I read your book. I love it. I like reading all of your books. We could talk about some of the old ones I've read too. And I remember we had a conversation. I don't know if it's in the studio or as you were leaving. And I said, I wonder how you would describe Mo Prager, who was one of your re recurring characters in your series. And you said you left that up to the reader. Because I said, I don't know what his age is. And you said, well, how do you think his age is? And I said, I don't know. He's 40 or 50 or he's big 
or he's small or he's heavy or he's skinny, I don't know. And you said, well, that's up to you to figure out. Now I'm going to challenge you. Uh, all my social media places that I put things on, I and Instagram put the cover of your book out there. Because I love the cover so people can find it on all my accounts. That we know what Nick Ryan looks like. So why this shift? And now we can have an idea of who he is, what he looks like. Kind of like Reacher. We know he's big and he's strong and who he is. But for the first time, why this cover? We can have a little bit of awareness and insight to your character, Nick Ryan. Because although it's in the same genre, quote unquote, it's a different kind of book than my Mo books or my Gus Murphy books. Because <clears throat> unlike Gus and Mo, right. who I define as uh, stumblers, people who were uniform cops but never detectives. So when they had, were called on to be detectives, they kind of didn't have the training and they stumbled about, which makes for interesting writing, by the way. I, I feel it makes for very interesting Well, let me writing. interject. How so does it make for interesting writing? How do you challenge yourself with those characters? Uh, because uh, when, because I, I, it's easy for me to put myself in their place because, hey, I don't know either. So who would I talk to? Who would I chase? Who would be a suspect? Because I don't have any training in that area and neither did they. They were, you know, quote unquote, first responders. Right. You know, uniformed cops, they don't deal with cases. They're the first ones there. And then when the detectives show up, they go. They're on to the next place, the next traffic accident, the next murder. The, and they have nothing to do with solving the case. So when they're called upon to solve a case, they don't have a clue. So it's easy for me to put myself in their shoes because I wouldn't know either. I mean, except for watching television. Um, so Nick is not a stumbler. Nick is the one of the first super competent, uber competent uh, characters I ever wrote. And it was really important for me to be specific about his looks for a reason that I don't want to give away here because it's important how he looks so that you know when someone else looks like him in the book, it's important. Uh, and if I didn't tell you what he looked like, it wouldn't make any sense for the reader that, that the other person uh, resembled him. Uh, secondly, he is a different kind of animal than Nick, than Gus or, or Mo, right, right. in that he knows what he's doing. And so he is a spe he's specifically drawn for reasons people will see in the book. And, and when I started out, I knew specifically I had someone in mind, unlike the other guys who I want the readers to just think of who they imagine as the character. Do you have an opinion about Elmore Leonard as a writer? Oh, I love Elmore Leonard. In fact, I knew him a little. I mean, I wouldn't say I knew him. I spent a half an hour with him at the Tucson airport once. Uh, we were both at the same festival. He was a nice guy. But, you know, like most crime writers, his only real relationship to crime should have been as a victim. He was a... Sh a short, kind of older right, gentleman, right. you know, he wrote the toughest freaking stuff. But, you know, you, if you saw him, you would have been shocked that this was Elmore Leonard. Here's where I'm going with that. I just finished watching all five seasons, six seasons on Late to the Party of Justified, where you have Raylan Gibbons and Boyd Crowder. In a sense, if Nick Ryan is your protagonist, who are, who are the antagonists? Is it one character? Is it the system? Is it multiple people? Who is he fighting against? Ah, so here's where I did the reversal. Whereas with Gus, with Gus and Mo, you didn't know what they looked like, but it was pretty clear who their antagonists were, right? Here, you know who Nick is, but I'm not going to tell you who his antagonist necessarily is. There are many antagonists. And don't forget, antagonist doesn't always mean the enemy. Right. So it's sometimes it's the bad guy, but it's sometimes it's somebody in your family. Sometimes it's somebody who means well. In this book, uh, in the which is the first of a series, 
he has bad guys who are antagonists, right. but he also has people who are on his side who are antagonists. So, you know, it's it's up for the reader. This time, it's up for the reader to think about the antagonists instead of the protagonists. So you've just come back from promoting the book all over the country. Congrats on that. Thank you. So I'm always fascinated by being in an audience or hosting an event when asking questions to the audience. Because my philosophy is you have 100 people and everybody gives you the same question, the same response. But if you get 100 different responses, then you really touched upon something. So when you were out there, what kind of feedback did you get about the book? Well, I didn't get much feedback because most of the people, it was a book tour, so they hadn't read the book yet. You know, um, I can say that the reviews uh, were excellent. Right. Um, and the, the feedback I've gotten since from the people who were at those book signings um, has been extremely positive. Um, but it's funny is I try really not to think about that stuff too much. My job is to write the book and I write the best book I can write and to worry about things that are out of my control, like reviews, like what people think of the book, like, you know, promoting it beyond what I can do or the numbers. Like I have writer friends who study their numbers all day long. Right, right. And I think that's insane because there's nothing you can do about that. The book will do how the book does. Um, you can promote it, which I did do, I toured it, but um, just to sit there and study the numbers, it's, uh, it's an abyss. So I, I try not to think about that stuff too much. So you can fill in the blanks for me, because sure. I know we don't want to give away too much, but the narrative really drives very, very well. And at one point in the story, Nick Ryan is given an offer he can't refuse, kind of like the Godfather, right? But he refuses. And then later on, he turns around and then accepts the offer. So where am I going with this? How can you explain what I'm kind of verbalizing? Well, um, Nick is a, a, like a third generation cop. So all he knows is duty. And all he knows is to, to honor and duty. I mean, he not only was a cop, uh, he also did two tours in Afghanistan. Uh, he felt duty-bound to do those things. Right, right. Um, so when he was offered this job, he said no because it wasn't strictly police work. It wasn't duty. It wasn't honor. Um, and then, though, his handler, uh, who shall go nameless for now, assures the people who offered him the job. He'll say yes. When push comes to shove, he'll say yes because he's duty and honor bound to accept it when there's a crisis because, because that is who Nick Ryan is. There are a series of events that take place in this book, and I'm curious if you share your thoughts about how setting up a timeline. It starts with a serial killer and a pedophile named Rick Collis, I believe, and it just goes right through there into public housing and a whole bunch of names that fascinate me, the way that you set it up. And I'm going to go a little further later on. But how do you set up these series of events that precipitate everything that transpired through the whole book? What's funny is I don't set it up. I've never, nope, you don't storyboard? I never outline. I never storyboard. I never have. Whenever I've tried it, it's a disaster. Because I always feel like if you outline you're writing the book. Right. And I don't feel like writing the book twice. So for me, it's always a matter of, I have an idea in my head, I have a vague, a vague idea of where it's going, and I let things, I let my head go free. I, I unbind myself and say, okay, I kinda know who I, the, my character is, I know what he stands for, uh, let me throw some challenges in front of him. And the challenges, occur, you know, they, they occur by themselves. I mean, I obviously unconsciously, right. I'm doing right. it, but I never, ever outline. And, and on those rare attempts I've tried, I hated it, and the results were terrible. I'm fascinated by the names writers use for their characters. I'm going to go back to a previous conversation I had with Stacey Murphy with the book called The Unquiet Dead. 
And this came out, this was a very small fact, but it gave me tremendous insight into the process of naming people. And some of their characters' last names are Matthew. And I said, when I'm writing my notes, I keep writing Matthews. And she said, no, I call them Matthew because in the back of their mind, they name it after St. Matthew. And it's not, it's not described in the book, but may show up in another book. That interests me. So how much thought goes into the people that you name? Nick Ryan's easy. I've written, read a lot of books where I have to go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth to remember the characters' names. Some of your characters' names I can hang on to. But how much thought in terms of the art and craft of storytelling do you give to naming characters? Well, to the protagonist, I give a lot of thought. Um, and that comes from being a poet. When I began as a poet, and uh, so the protagonist, if you if you study protagonist names in crime fiction, uh, they're usually the ones I stick in my head. Right, are three or four syllables: Nick Ryan, Mo Prager, uh, Gus Murphy. Right, so they're easy. It's one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, and also. I like to give an idea of their ethnicity in it, um, you know, instead of bland. I mean, the book's set in New York, so it's very hard to have um, no ethnicity in your books, right. your character not be identified by ethnicity in the books. So for me, protagonist, three or four syllables and, and, and give a hint at least about ethnicity. Um, as far as naming the other characters, I'm 32 books in. That's published books, 32. And I've written three or four more in the meantime, including the sequel. So you run out of names. Okay. You run out of names. And I named them for guys I play golf with, guys I play basketball with, guys I grew up with, women I dated. I mean, it just. Did you that know. get you in trouble? No. The women no. you dated? Okay. No, because I switched their names a little bit. Um, you know. Charlene Harris, who wrote the True Blood series. Yes, yes. She, I, you know, I know her and what she does sometimes. And she goes over the roles of dead people in the obituaries or social security scrolls. I mean, there's lots of ways. There are name generators. But, you know, um, I, I know I, I, I just I'm so unoriginal about names other than the protagonist of the bad guy. Because now a lot of thought went into... Um, one of the bad guys in this book, his name, um, Ford. His, right. There was a lot that went into his name. Um, and that's a very interesting, he's pulling a lot of strings. Yes. So it's not always that I don't put a lot of thought into it, but, you know, and I never believe in minor characters, so I won't say minor characters, but secondary characters, I put less thought into it. Now, I recently did what we used to call an air check when I was doing radio on Long Island. And the air check was to listen to the mistakes that you make. And I listened to some of my more recent podcasts. I kept saying the word so, so, so to set all the questions up. So when you write, once again, here's another so, when you write, is there a problem with falling back on phrases, words that you've used in the past? Uh. So, <laughs> so uh, there's, yes, so one watches out for them. Um, and there are times when I repeat whole sentences and phrases purposely. Right. Uh, because uh, like one of the themes of all of my books, all of them, is it's hard to know yourself. So how can you say you know someone else? So... I've stopped trying to hint about that. And I often just use that sentence. And in the book I'm writing now, I use that sentence several times because why cover it up? Uh, and if it works, if it worked before, it'll work again. So uh, sometimes repeating yourself is not such a bad thing. But I have become... I used to always list things by threes All right. and I've become very conscious of watching out for that. So if I remember, you grew up in Brooklyn, correct? Coney Island. Coney, yes. well, that's still Brooklyn. Yes, it is. It's a is. special part that's of Brooklyn. Why, that's why I, I have the parachute jump tattooed <laughs> on my forearm. So I watched again Brooklyn's Finest and I thought of you as a crime fiction film. 
Now, it's a different era, a different time. But once again, the cops are off the hook. Princes of the city getting in trouble. But you have a whole bunch of cops in your book that don't necessarily play by the rules. Well, Nick certainly doesn't play by the rules, uh, which is the great paradox of Nick in that when he's on the job doing his day job, which is being a, a detective, an NYPD detective, he does play by the rules. In fact, he's a great rule enforcer. Um, but when he has, when he's doing his other job, he totally draws outside the lines. And so that's what makes, for me, that helps make him an interesting character because he has to deal with the dissonance of that. Right. Because it's not in his nature to do that. And so he's now given license to do that. No, Nick, go ahead. Do whatever it takes. The problems are ours. The solutions are yours. And we will give you anything you need to, to make things go away. Now, that's an interesting thing for a guy who's a rule follower generally. Um, Tom Clavin is another terrific writer, mostly writes non nonfiction. And he, he was in here, he's been here multiple times. He wrote a book called Tombstone about the gunfight at OK Corral. And I thought about you. There's, See, there's a lot of bad things that make you think about me. <laughs> well, here's where I'm going. There's a scene at the jail in Riverhead where two of your guys, characters in the book, and Nick Ryan's one of them, undercover, are locked into a gym, and then the gym doors open up, and my version or your version of gunfight at the OK Corral takes place, and I love what you did. Misdirection and everything else. Um, that was an interesting scene to write. Um, and I, I have a CO, uh, corrections officer friend who, uh, doesn't get credited because he doesn't want to be credited, but this, that scene has some authenticity, authenticity because I can, I could picture the, 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 the Riverhead jail so clearly, um, yeah, that was a fun scene to write. I, you know, SJ, who you brought up before, SJ Roseanne, right. hates writing action scenes. Does she really? Hates it. Like she will post on on social <laughs> media, writing an action scene. Hate it, hate it, hate it. Me, on the other hand, uh, I love writing action scenes. I don't have a million of them. So when I write them and I try to really make them seem... Like I play them out in my head. And that scene is, is probably the most complicated uh, action scene I've ever had in a book. And I really had to go through because there's a lot of people involved. There are five people involved in that scene. Um, and, you know, when do you, when do you put the camera on this character? Right. And when do you put the character on those characters? It, it's complicated. So I understand why SJ hates it, but I kind of get off on doing them. So do you write with your ears or your eyes or a combination of both? Uh, my kishkas. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, I write with my, it depends, action scenes, it's my eyes first, ears second. Uh, the rest of the book, it's often my ears and then my eyes. Because humans are very, and you left out nose. If you, if you, right. you'll notice you can, in almost every one of my chapters, you will get uh, sound, you'll get the five senses okay. in my books. Whereas humans are so visual that we tend to dismiss visual description. So I try not to do too much visual description. I'd much rather do other senses, other senses descriptions than visual. Is there audio versions of your books? Yes. Uh, Everyone. And the reason I ask that is because we can read, but we don't know what the voices sound like. We can estimate based on how you describe your characters and what you get. And you said New York City got characters, they got all these different voices, and they're genuine. But listening to a, an audio version, we hear the characters. Does that make a difference in how we perceive the book? Well, you'd have to ask people who are listening to the book. I mean, I've listened to this book. And it's written, it's uh, narrated by a man named Peter Giles, who's a famous uh, book narrator. 
and his voice is not unlike mine. So it's, it's odd listening to him because it's like listening in my head to me. Right. He doesn't read it exactly the way I would have read it. He only mispronounces one word in the whole book, by the way. What was the word? Uh, I, I don't want to call attention to it. Oh, you can do uh, that. <laughs> yeah, the, Nick went to Zavarian High School in Brooklyn, and he calls it Zavarian. All right. Uh, but that, that's it. That's the only word he mispronounces. Where I, I've had other people, uh, other narrators, uh, mispronounce tons of words, which made me furious because it ruins my credibility to have them mispronounce words I should know. So you mentioned that very famous Catholic school. Yes. I think of Jim Carroll and Basketball Diaries because his character, in a sense, went one way, and your character, coming out of a high school basketball player, I believe, right. an athlete, right. goes another way, but they all came out of the same world. Yes, you know, uh, isn't that what makes life interesting? Uh, people have the same experiences, but they experience those experiences differently. Um, and we're hardwired. I mean, I just became a grandfather. Congrats. Thank you. Um, and, you know, I'm looking at my granddaughter and wondering, is she going to be like my daughter? Maybe not. She right. may look like my daughter, right. but don't forget there's 50% of her is my son-in-law. So, and there's his whole family and his whole history. And so, you know, people have, can have exactly the same experience, but they experience that experience differently. Which is the definition, because I, I interviewed Jeanette Walls years ago for the Glass Castle, and she said, with memoirs, my recollections, my memories, or it could be a lot different than my siblings and other people, which is a wonderful thing, is my thought, this is how I perceive what happens, they may be different than somebody else's. Which is exactly why memoir, if I wrote a memoir, my recollections would be fact. But my brothers experienced those same things and their memoirs would be very different. And, and you can tell, tell a family story with your family oh, and hear about how, wait a second, that's not what Uncle Lenny said. I know that for a so, fact. Yeah, and so. they argue about that, right. about you got it wrong, you got it yeah. right, and you can't settle it because it's just how they're coming right. across. I, I love epilogues and dedications. The epilogue opens up and I believe you're telling me there's a sequel coming. There's a mysterious woman and uh, showing up, I don't want to give away too much, at a cemetery which I love that part of the epilogue. Yeah, I, I, you know, this book is a bigger book that, you know, Mo and Gus books are very personal. Yeah. And they're set in, you know, in a tight geographical area with a, you know, limited amount of characters. This book is quite the opposite. This book is set all over the New York metropolitan area with all sorts of characters. I mean, you haven't even mentioned Larry. Uh, Lenny. Well, that was uh, one, one of my favorites. You know, who f for me, as Peter Blowner said, right. he could read a whole book right. just about Lenny. And I don't want to give anything away because the one person so far who didn't get justice is Lenny. Right. And maybe he will and maybe well, he won't. But that's know? the one I'm saying. Right. He want, he's desperate for justice and he suffered a loss of his family. And so far he hasn't got it. But I think, I hope you're setting that up. Well, we shall see. That's that's the great part of a series, right? Yeah. Is that you introduce characters, including the mystery woman. Yes. Um, who may be featured in a later book. That's the whole joy of series writing because otherwise it would be boring for the writer and the reader. You, you the first book in a series is very important because you've built the world in which the characters live. So we have one minute left, Reed Farrell Coleman. I always end every segment with, what did I miss? What did I get wrong? So what did I miss? What did I get wrong? It's your ball. Roll with it. Oh, uh, what you got wrong was inviting me on the show. <laughs> That's the best answer we ever got. <laughs> <laughs> what you got right is um, the kind of fascination for uh, the various characters in the book. I think... 
I think you've got that, which of course makes me happy because that was the point. The point is, yes, it's about Nick, but yes, it's not about Nick. It's about the city. The city in this book is the city in the surrounding area because obviously some of it takes place in the county you and I are sitting in. Suffolk right County now. Long Island. Suffolk County. Um, you know, so it's in this book more than I think any other book I ever wrote setting his character. So, um, you know, other than that, you know, you can get it wrong again and invite me back. You always have welcome to come back. Well, I want to thank Reed Farrell Coleman. He has to come back because he said it on the air. The book is called Sleep of City. After the break, Ben Crane, the author of Men of Lies, joins the podcast. I'm Larry Davidson. Be right back. The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com. Hi, I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome back to the podcast, Artful Periscope. Ben Crane was almost a mathematician, but instead went to storytelling. Currently works in LA in film development, most recently on the Jack Ryan series, which I love, and Equalizer franchises. Ben is here to discuss his novel, A Man of Lies. And Ben, it's a thrill to have you on the podcast. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So I am a huge TV and movie fan. And in my head, for what it's worth, in terms of your book, A Man of Lies, are the elements of Ozark, also The Sting, and Fargo, as well as Jimmy Breslin's book, The Gang That Couldn't Shoot Straight. So I'm my way off base, or are some of these elements part of your storytelling? Uh, no, you, you, you've absolutely made my day. Just right off the bat, um, I uh, I I love uh, Ozarks. I love uh, Fargo, both the the film and the TV show. Right. I think that those are definitely there. Um, I've always been fascinated more by stories of small people caught up in crime. Um, than than you know, the the people who are perfect at right, it. Right. I am absolutely thrilled that you would say you saw those things in in my book uh, because that's exactly what I was going for. So in the prologue, I hopefully I'm quoting this correctly. He said your character says nothing I say is the truth and nothing I say is a lie or the lie. I love that. It's a beautiful setup. Where are we going with that in terms of the rest of the book? That was the first thing I wrote was was that line. That was the very, very genesis of this story was that concept of can I tell a story with a narrator who never once says something that is an outright falsehood, but where everything he says is misdirection right. and is carefully couched to to misguide and and to leave the reader open to misinterpretation. So your character we're talking about is Barrett Rye, correct? Yes. So as an eight-year-old, he becomes fascinated with magic and rope tricks. So in a sense, it's this whole book about illusions, misdirections, and everything else in terms of the setting and their characters and what transpires. Absolutely. It, it's absolutely a, a story about misdirection. Um, and there is a huge amount of overlap between magic and storytelling. Uh I, I'm not sure who first said it, but I I first heard it from Penn and Teller talking about magic and saying that a magic trick is made up of two separate but equally critical pieces. The first is the actual mechanics of how the illusion is achieved, but there has to be a story behind it as well. There has to be something to make the audience care about why this illusion is important. And the trick for me of storytelling is the same as the trick of a magician. It's 
setting up expectation and then subverting that expectation in a way which is surprising but inevitable. So settings can also be characters. And I came across something I believe Crime Reads wrote, and I'm going to try to quote it verbatim. And they said, because your setting is the Midwest, we mentioned Fargo. Great setting with Mm -hmm. Fargo in the Midwest. And they, they said there's something sinister about the Midwest, whether it's the endless parts, horizons of Nebraska or through the whiteout snows of Minnesota. This is a region where no one can hear you scream. There's a lot of screaming in your book, but the setting of them, there's something special in uh, the Midwest. We have crime in Chicago. We have crime settings in L.A. and New York City and in, in the metropolitan area where I'm from. Well, talk about where you set up the whole story because you're from L.A. You're not from the Midwest, I believe. I so I grew up in North Carolina in Charlotte. Uh, I went to school in Connecticut. I lived briefly after college in South Korea, um, and then I moved out to Los Angeles. So I am very much not from the Midwest. I have visited the Midwest. I have family in the Midwest, um, but it's not. You're you're absolutely right. It's not where I'm from. Going back to the idea of illusion and misdirection, one of the reasons that I set this book in uh, Omaha specifically is as much as the book is about misdirection, it's also about preconceived notions and the way that what we assume to be true, what we believe to be true based on first impressions can so often mislead us. And I wanted a setting which would be both believably the location of this significant heist and this valuable work of art, but also the least likely place that you could imagine to to house that. And uh, I was talking with my dad about uh, Omaha Right. And he he mentioned how there is a huge uh, art culture in Omaha, that that it has wonderful art museums, that it punches way above its weight class in terms of the amount of culture that it houses and generates. And it just immediately connected for me that this had to be where the book was set because it had all of those elements that I was looking for. So let's go back to Barrett Rye. In your opinion, what constitutes an anti-hero? Because probably by definition, he's an anti-hero. But I wonder, in your mind, what is an anti-hero? Um, it's a fascinating question. Uh, and I don't have a, a immediate um, fast answer for it. So you'll have to forgive me as I sort of stumble my way to, to understanding with you here together. One of the things that I always try and focus on in my writing is the idea that everybody believes they're the hero of their own story. Okay. That everyone at the end of the day has to be able to justify their actions to themselves. And... It's very important for me as a writer to be able to understand why someone is doing what they're doing and and how they justify what they've done. That said, Barrett has done some terrible things, and he does do some terrible things. But he struggles with that, and it's that struggle which makes him interesting. And... I think it's that struggle that makes anti-heroes interesting. I guess we've now found the understanding I there was we looking go. for. Uh, that, that an anti-hero is, is, a, is someone who grapples with the distance between what they have to do and what they would like to do. So let's reset. My guest is Ben Crane. His book is called Men of Lies. I'm Larry Davidson. This is the podcast Artful Periscope, I think what you do is like a cat playing with a mouse till they do the mouse in. Are you playing with the readers? In a sense, your character's doing the same thing. 
if you're not playing with your readers, then why are you doing this? It's 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 a conversation between the author and the reader, and it feels one sided at times, but it's not. And if you're not playing with the reader, if you're not having fun, other people might get other things out of writing. But for me, that's where the joy is. It is in in that conversation, in that back and forth, in trying to misguide and then delight. So yeah, I I think it's entirely uh, appropriate to describe the book that way. So your characters are doing the same thing. That's my take. They're also playing with other characters in this book and keeping the sense of your fishing analogy, keeping them on a line till it's time to reel them in. Yeah, yeah, they they absolutely are. Um, I don't think I have anything to add to that. You you've summed it up perfectly. This is a book beyond crime. It's a book about relationships. And one of the precipitating events early in the book is the killing of the accountant for the mob in Chicago, Mickey, who has a very special relationship with Barrett. So I want to go back to the backstory of how they first came together, Mickey and Barrett. Now, we say some people only can play checkers. Some people can only play chess. Some people are involved with the multiple layers of chess in terms of strategy. Your character is being exposed to go and strategy. And I love that little snippet about learning how to play the game go. For people who don't know what the game is all about and has a rich history going back many, many years, what is that game? Go is the, to my knowledge, it's the oldest board game that is still played, that has been played continuously since its creation. It's a ancient, ancient game played. It's very simple, played with black and white stones on a grid. Um, At its most basic, it's about trying to build control of territory on the board. But and I, I have to confess, I am not a even competent Go player. I know the game. I love the game. There is a profound beauty to it. I I am no good at it at all. Um, but the the best Go players talk about Go not as a competition, but as a create a, a collaborative collective creation of a work of art right? and that a board at the end of a game is a unique and beautiful and expressive creation. And I have just always found that to be beautiful and it felt appropriate as a metaphor for these two men finding themselves in each other, finding a way to express who they are that has never been available to them to couch that within this game of exploration and discovery and beauty. You understand the world of movies and television working out there in LA area. One of the classic TV programs of all time was 24 hours. In a sense is your book, elongated version of the ticking time bomb with your timeline. I I could understand that reading. I could support that reading. Yeah. Um, the, the scale of the book is very limited. As you know, the whole narrative takes place over four days. Um, and each chapter has a, a timestamp at the top of it. The book is divided into four sections. Those four sections are the four days. I... I like stories that have a very compressed timeline because it allows incredible pressure to build on the characters and any moment that they don't have pressure on them, they can relax, they can recover, but by keeping it so short, it keeps 
it keeps them on. I just keep saying the word pressure over and over, but it keeps them under pressure. And that's when people reveal themselves is when they're forced to act. And the short time frame works very well for that. For me, it worked very well in 24. Um, and yeah, I, I, yes. Everybody's searching to have possession of a key fob. And that sets everything up in terms of a safe inside of a safe. And some people think they have it and some people think they don't. And there's mayhem ensues from there. But a little thing like that sets off a firestorm in terms of driving the narratives. How much you want to give away about that? How much do I want to give away? I mean, I... The contents of the safe at the end of the day don't matter. It's like the briefcase in Pulp Fiction. It's an excuse for everything else to exist. Um, the book is about many different people who have all decided that this safe has the answers to all of their problems. And it tracks four days in Omaha as all of them ranging from my my protagonist and narrator, Barrett Rye, who's a former mafia enforcer, right. to incredibly competent organized criminals, to bumbling street-level break-in artists, to police both straight and crooked, as all of them fight for this fob, which is the key to a safe, which has within it another safe, which has within it the final answer to everybody's problems. So I'm going to mention one of the characters who's a safecracker, and that's his last name is Pickens. Is he the Trojan horse in this story? There, there are so many Trojan horses in the story. Um, to go back to the, the magic metaphor, the key to a successful illusion is that the answer has to be in plain view the entire time, and yet you never think to look at it until it becomes critical. And so the book is full of people and objects and places which feel like nothing at the moment that they're first introduced and then become critically important at a critical moment. Do you think of a writer, as a writer, as scenes that are cinematic? I'm thinking of two very cinematic scenes. One is a shootout in the mob boss's home. The second is another shootout at a farmhouse of the mob boss. And they, in my mind, I, I can hear the sounds, the gunshots, the dialogue. I love the dialogue going back and forth. And also one harken back to a lot of illusions and misdirections because we finally find out what happens later on. But there's a wonderful misdirection that transpired in this book. And as a storyteller, you did a great job with that. Well, thank you. I, the fact that you could see it, the fact that you could hear it, that means I did my job. Um, and yes, I, my background is in film. I spent, um, almost 15 years working in film development. Uh, the biography in the back of the book is now slightly outdated. I'm no longer in film development. Right. I'm writing full time. Uh, but film and TV have always been important to me. They will always be important to me. Uh, when I was in college, I studied film and literature. And so the cinematic the appreciation for the visual will never leave what I write. At the same time, in my development job, I read so many books that were clearly just angling to be a movie. And the work suffers significantly for that. And I never wanted to do that with this book. I hope to never do that with anything. Is the problems right now in terms of streaming services and television, probably the movie algorithms, you write to an algorithm 
artificial intelligence. A lot of streaming services, because of the cutbacks in economics, are just cutting off television programs, even though they have a following, because the algorithm mm-hmm. says they're not enough people who want to watch. And they're, they're just, in a sense, excising a lot of good programming. So how does that affect you in terms that, you, you know, there's so much generic stuff. I was watching something on Stars, and I like the original Stars series. And now they got one set in Chicago where the original character came out of New York City. And I've stopped watching it because it has everything is one trope to the next trope to the next trope about violence and crime. And I love this character when he's in New York City, but I can't watch it anymore. It's the whole power series that Stars runs because they run mm-hmm. a certain kind of program. They're a little different than HBO and Showtime. That's their niche. But I'm wondering if you're seeing the same stuff over and over again, have you stay from writing the same stuff over and over again? If your publicist or your agent comes to you and says, A Man of Lies is a terrific book, write the second one just like the first one. I, first of all, am, I am incredibly lucky in that my, my representative, my agent and manager are both incredibly supportive of me. They have both said, write whatever you want, we'll go out and sell it. Uh, and to know that they have my back on that is incredibly freeing for me as an artist. I also, I have two very different paths that I am following simultaneously as an author. In addition to crime novels like A Man of Lies, I have uh, I just... Um, See, it's so six months ago, I released my first graphic novel, which is an all ages science fiction adventure story. It could not be more different from the world of a man of lies if, if I was trying. And I have found incredible value in being able to move between these two mediums, right. telling hard crime noir stories and light fun adventure tales for middle schoolers. And I think that that has kept both lines of my career fresher and more original because I can't fall into that rut of just writing the same thing over and over because I have to keep reinventing myself every time I switch from one the other and then back. So when people read this book, this book is really about, in the heart of this book, is about relationships. And I want to read the book about the relationship because it's special between Barrett and Mickey. The one relationships that got to me in a very visceral way is a relationship between Barrett and Tommy Boy Wright. He's part of the gang that couldn't shoot straight. And the way that you set it up, and you're showing, in a sense, the growth, if there is growth in that four-day period of Barrett in terms of feeling responsible for somebody else beside himself. I, you're just making me so happy. You, you just keep saying these incredibly wonderful things. Johnny Boy is absolutely the heart of this book. And every time someone tells me that they connected with his story, It just, it makes me smile Um, because he, he is, and the book is the story of how Barrett and Mickey find each other and save each other. And then later how Barrett and Johnny boy find each other and save each other. And it is in learning to care for Johnny Boy and trying to take care of him that Barrett finds the strength and the meaning in his own life to change and to stop telling himself the lies that he has used to justify the terrible things that he's done. There's another and reason another, another reason to, to read this book, and I'm not going to give it away, but there is a terrific twist at the end. People can't see you. You're smiling, and I'm grateful that you're smiling at me because I'm not easy to look at. But the twist is wonderful in terms of, in a sense, redemption. The twist was the second thing I wrote. 
the first was that that line um nothing i say is the truth nothing i say is a lie the second was the the ending and for a for a story like this for a heist story i think you have to start at the end and then work backwards and otherwise the pieces aren't going to fall into place how they should right uh, but you you are right that there is there is a twist. It is ultimately a tale of redemption, which was one of my goals when I set out to write it. The crime genre can be so dark and so nihilistic and so hopeless. And one of the things I wanted to do with this book was tell a story couched in that dark and nihilistic world but which ultimately ends on a note of hope and a note of potential. And that's what I want people to take away from it is hope that our actions can change who we are and can change the world that we're in. So we always end every segment for better or worse with the guest and myself. What did I miss? What did I get wrong? So if I missed anything, anything wrong, run with it. I don't think you've missed anything. I don't think you've gotten anything wrong. I don't know that it's possible to get something wrong when you're reading a book. The, the book that you read, whatever you take away from it is correct. There's no wrong way to, to read a book. There's nothing wrong to take away from it. Um, once Once I'm done with it, once any author is done with it, then it's out in the world and it's up to the readers to figure out what it is. So you and I have something in common in a, in a very small way because I don't have the talent. I can ask questions and hopefully they're the right questions. We are both dog lovers. So <laughs> you want to talk about, you have two, you have two dogs. I have two dogs. Yes. So come on, give some props to your dog. Mention them right away. Uh, so I have a, a pit bull terrier mix named Anya, right. who is, I believe she's now nine years old. We got her when she was 18 months from the shelter. And a husky German shepherd mix named Bertie, whose fourth birthday is coming up. And they are currently sitting outside the door to my office, upset because they're not allowed in because I need it to be quiet for this. Yeah, that's too bad. I've done so many podcasts, <laughs> especially during COVID-19, where the animals, were, especially the cats, were sitting on the cat's shoulder and meowing. <laughs> I don't mind. My last two golden retrievers were both rescues and were both adopted and were both given forever homes. So I'm a huge fan of rescuing animals. And, and and pairing them up because I just think they enhance our lives completely besides the fact we have, quote unquote, our relationship with humans. Absolutely. I grew up with dogs. I always had, there was one week in my childhood where we didn't have a dog between when we only had one at the time and, and uh, he passed away very suddenly. And then a week later we had another one. Uh, when I moved out to LA and my partner and I started looking for apartments, our first criteria was it had to allow pets. We had to be able to get a dog. They just add so much joy and love to, to our lives. They're, they are beautiful and wonderful and I would be absolutely lost without them. That would be the last word. Great way to end this episode. My guest has been Ben Crane. The book is called The Man of Lies. I also want to thank, thank our first guest, Reed Farrell Coleman, Sleepless City. I'm Larry Davidson. Till the next time, bye-bye. The Artful Periscope Podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Crisafaro, sound editors and engineer, Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, 
visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at LarryDavidsonsProductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. Tired to her kitchen chair, she